0: All right, um, last week we finished First Samuel by reading about the death of King Saul. But Samuel is uh, really just one book in Hebrew with two main characters, Saul and David. And we are meant, as we read the story, to compare those two kings. Um, and we've already learned a lot by that comparison. David, for instance, was anointed by Samuel about 15 years before he actually became king. Saul had been anointed by Samuel and then crowned almost immediately, which means that Saul became king without any period of testing or suffering or challenge, where David, in contrast, Suffered for years before actually becoming king. He was tested repeatedly. He was not perfect, but his life was marked with this humble preparation that God kind of put him through the gauntlet before he let him take the throne, unlike Saul. And I think that's kind of an important background as we come into 2 Samuel. What it shows us is that in the kingdom of God, patient, humble suffering always comes before exaltation. It was true for David. We know it was true for Jesus. And it's going to be true for all servants of the king, including us. And so now I'm excited to finally begin chapter uh, 1 of 2 Samuel with you. This is God's word. It says this. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David... He fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind me, he saw me and called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he, that Saul, said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Well, then David, well, back up. I'm not supposed to read that yet. Okay, sorry. Pause. If you remember, um, 1 Samuel 31 tells a very different story about Saul's death. We studied it last week. Saul's last words were to his armor bearer. He said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised... Okay, lest these pagans come and thrust me through and mistreat me. And the story goes in 1 Samuel 31 that the armor bearer was too afraid to kill Saul. And so Saul fell on his own sword. But the Amalekite here tells David a much different story. According to this young man... Saul asked him, an uncircumcised pagan, to kill him. And not just any pagan, an Amalekite. Okay, so Saul lost his kingdom because of the Amalekites. Which means, in my opinion, this story is complete garbage. Okay, this man is lying. And it's not difficult to figure out why. The Amalekite assumes that David is going to reward him for killing Saul. And so he travels several days and he arrives in David's camp in ragged condition in order to present David with the symbols of Saul's kingdom, the crown and the armband. And he embellishes the story hoping for a job in the new regime, in the new government. And, of course, that's not going to go as planned. We're going to read about that in a minute. But first, now we get to read verse 11. Watch what happens. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. These two verses are central to the story. This grief. And in the Bible, how stories are told are almost as important as the story itself the Bible, especially these narrative passages, these story passages, the Bible always has this structure to it, and there's meaning in the structure. And so if you read 2 Samuel 1, and you read it in a hurry, you would summarize the story by saying that it's about the lie of the Amalekite and then David's judgment of the Amalekite. And that's important But much more important because of the structure is this grief. David and his men grieve for Saul. They grieve for the man who tried to kill David multiple times. And it's not just a grand gesture, it's not just a show. According to the writer, this is is genuine mourning and it is lasting all day. They are grieving deeply over the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan. They're also grieving over the vulnerability of Israel having lost the battle. And it says they weep and they fast. They deprive themselves of food. And this is sincere grief. And it would be easy for us to kind of read right over this and not make a point of it. It would also be easy for us to say that Saul, because of the kind of king he was, the kind of person he was to David, doesn't deserve this kind of grief. Jonathan, maybe, was David's friend. He was a good man. But Saul... Why are they grieving over Saul? And yet this is this is what righteous people do in the Bible. They grieve loss even when that loss was necessary. It was ordained by God. Jesus was described is described in the Bible as a man of sorrows and grief. And that's not just because of the cross. His ministry shows us many times where Jesus is sorrowful and grieving over the world. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus stood overlooking the city and he wept because he was grieving the sin and the death of this world and the, the lostness of his own people. And in today's church, we tend to make much of joy and hopefulness. And we absolutely should. That's fruit of the Spirit. But lament is also a big part of the Bible. It's also a big part of the Christian experience. Because having the Spirit of Christ Jesus means that we start to see the world as Jesus sees the world sometimes the darkness around us will cause us grief. And I just thought it was important just to stop and say, okay, before David does anything else, before he deals with the problem at hand, he and his men stop and they grieve over Saul. Even Saul. Verse 13. And David said to the young man, the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointing? David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment to appreciate how God exposes the sin of this man. Okay? David doesn't know that the man is lying, but it doesn't matter. God is judging this man for the intentions of his heart. He's being condemned by his own words. Even though he lies, he's doing it for personal gain. And God exposes this and judges him. And I think this is a warning to us. Listen to what Jesus said about the religious leaders. Okay, So the the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the important men of Jesus' day, they were respected by the people, but Jesus knew that their hearts were evil. Look at what he says in Luke 12. He says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. In other words, God knows what we really think, and he's in the business of exposing us. Um, Parents, we understand this, don't we? We are praying... That our kids will make good decisions, and when they don't, we're praying that they will be caught. Am I right? How many of you, uh, growing up, did your parents tell you, "You know, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that if you do something dumb, you're going to get caught doing it." Right? I see some heads nodding. We say this. The funny thing is, my kids actually call me out on stuff probably more often than I do them. Um, but the idea is there, right? We. We try to hide, and we get caught, and this is actually part of God's economy, especially for people in the church, for God's people. Uh, Look at verse 17, though. We're going to close out by looking at kind of what happens after this story of the Amalekite. And it comes back to why verses 11 and 12 are so important. Verse 17, And David lamented, with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jeshar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. And then what follows is about 10 verses, which is, A Song of Grief, written by David. And in this song, David shows a tremendous amount of respect for both Saul and Jonathan. And again, as I read through it, I'm like, okay, I understand the respect for Jonathan. But Saul? So it's not just that David is grieving Saul's death. He's now grieving in such a way that he's, he's lamenting of it. He's, he's showing respect for Saul's kingship. The respect that David had for Saul, in spite of everything that Saul did to him, is absolutely striking to me. And I think it tells us two things about David. And these two things have a very clear application for us. Okay, So first of all, David's respect for Saul Remind me of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Saul was clearly an enemy of David. But Saul was also the Lord's anointed. Even in this chapter after his death, he's called the Lord's anointed a couple of different times by David. And David understood that, okay? He's my enemy, but he's also the Lord's anointed. Now think about this. Why are we commanded by the Lord Jesus to love and respect even our enemies? The simple answer is this, because I'm no better than my enemies. Every person on the planet that has a soul, which is every person, was created in the image of God. And according to God, that alone is reason to love them. Now, David's relationship with Saul, it was was more complicated than this, but I'm just using this to make a very simple point, okay? David's relationship with Saul, at minimum, we could describe them as political opponents. (laughs) And that would be kind of a, a minimal way to think about it. It was much bigger than that, much more complicated than that. But they were at least political opponents. Now, can we even say as Americans that we love and respect the people who disagree with us politically just because they're made in the image of God. They bear His holy image in some way, though it's broken in each of us. Can we say that we do a good job, even in the church, of loving and respecting people who disagree with us philosophically, socially, culturally, politically. Doubtful, right? But love your enemies at least means that. At least. And and really it means far more than that, right? But like that's just kind of like setting the bar really low. And that's the first lesson. Um, if David can show... This kind of grief and respect and dignity for a man that was literally crazy and trying to kill him just because he's the Lord's anointed. And I think that says something about the way we ought to treat other human beings. Okay, second. David's respect for Saul shows us that David was clearly not driven by a desire for power as the Amalekite assumed, right? So the Amalekite comes to David and he's assuming that I'm going to bring the crown, I'm going to get a promotion, okay? David's going to love this because he's the next king, he's got to be, right? And so he assumes that David is going to be driven by this this desire for power, this desire to seize control. But that's actually not what we see here. What we see is that David was clearly driven by a fear of displeasing God. That seems to be David's heart motivation in most things that he does, at least the things he does right in most of his stories so far. That's what he seems to be caring about primarily. And this is related to the first point because the concern is still the glory of God, okay? Disrespecting the anointed of God or even the image of God, which is all of us, is not okay with God. And what we're going to learn about David in the next few chapters is that David is still willing to wait for God to lead even after Saul's death, right? It seems obvious now just go take the throne, David. Saul's dead, he's gone. But that's actually not how it plays out. He is not going to take the kingdom, it will be given to him by God. But David is not going to rush to grab that power. He is going to honor Saul, and he's going to wait. And that is so convicting to me personally when I consider how I normally operate on a day-to-day basis, because I am so often driven by a fear of what others think about me or by a desire for for what I want to accomplish or how I want to succeed or what I want to have. And those are the things that, that usually, if I'm going to be honest, are like driving me to do the things that I do, to say the things that I say. It's not a fear of displeasing God or a respect for God's law or a desire for God to be glorified through me and in my life. And this is even more convicting to me when I stop to consider the connection that this passage has to Jesus Christ because His mission on earth as the Gospels describe it was this mission of perfect patience. Perfect dependence on God. I mean, the very first thing that happens after Jesus is baptized is Satan takes him out into the wilderness to tempt him, right? Or actually, God sent him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Satan tries to tempt Jesus with earthly power. He says, go ahead and take it. Here it is. Let's go get it done. And Jesus refused. There were several moments in Jesus's ministry where the Gospels tell us that the crowds of people tried to take Jesus and make him king by force. Because they wanted a violent revolution. They wanted political power. But instead of leading violence against others, Jesus himself rejected that and chose death. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And in the face of that death, the most powerful images in the Bible Jesus in the garden pleading with his Father. To remove the cup of judgment. And I want you to understand. Because I think it's easy to misunderstand that. What we see in Jesus in that moment is fear. It's not. It's not the ungodly fear or anxiety that we experience of course. It's not a fear even of death or of pain. It's not what he's experiencing. What he's experiencing is. Is a deep fear of displeasing his father. Displeasing God. Because in order to bring forgiveness. It meant that Jesus was going to have to bear the curse of our sin. He was going to have to associate himself. With our failures. He was going to have to suffer rejection in our place. And we know it was a fear of displeasing God. Because Jesus prayed to the father. Even though he knew what he was about to do in associating himself with all the, the sin of his people, he says these words: "Not my will but yours be done." So that's the only thing it could have been this fear of displeasing his father. And brothers and sisters, when you become a Christian, The Spirit brings this deep conviction. It says says in our heart, we start to say by its power, I'm not okay with God. God is not okay with me. And something needs to be done about that. That's the first feeling that I experienced when I think I was being called by God into His kingdom. And I began to feel the weight of that, right? My life does not bring glory to God. It does not honor Him. I'm not doing what I was created to do. I'm not being who I was created to be. And then after that comes this this godly fear of His holiness... Just the impending doom, the danger, that realization. that This isn't just like the math doesn't add up. Like, I'm in trouble. And then it's quickly followed. If it's initiated by the Spirit. If it's not, if it's a godly sorrow. If it's a godly induced um, conviction then it's not going to leave you there. It is quickly followed by the amazement of the gospel. The Spirit brings peace in the words of Jesus. It is finished. And God does not want us to respond to that conviction with a commitment to try harder without first leaning into Christ when Jesus preached the good news, He said, repent and believe, not repent and try harder. And so, guys, as I read through this, I was thinking about how in the world to apply this, and I see David's respect for Saul and his his fear of doing anything not to jeopardize His future kingdom, but to displease God. To not be worthy of His calling. To And I'm thinking, okay, who am I in this story? Because I'm certainly not David. <laughs> Apart from Jesus, I'm the Amalekite. Because I have to look at the story and I have to put myself in it. And the the reality is, brothers and sisters, we have killed the Lord's anointed. But He welcomes us into His kingdom by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for being the greater David. Perfect David, who in perfect righteousness came to this earth and lived a perfect life, never once displeasing his father, never once doing anything out of selfish gain or ambition, never once caring what others thought about him, even willing to entertain prostitutes and tax collectors without fear of his reputation being marred because he knew who he was. He was your son. You were His Father. And He put all that on the line. He suffered rejection for our sin. And it was our sin that put Him there. And even though we've killed the Lord's anointed, You welcome us into Your kingdom by faith. I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would bring the conviction that is needed for anyone in this room, including me, to remember Your Gospel, to embrace the forgiveness that's found in Christ, and to relish the opportunity to be with You forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.